Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. My kids refuse to go to bed. I tell them to stop resisting arrest. (laughs) What is Beethoven doing now? He's decomposing. (laughs) Last one, last one. What invention, what invention lets us see through walls? What invention allows us to see through walls? Windows, come on. (laughs) Windows, you got it. So there you are. Okay, I'll spare you the rest. All right, happy Father's Day, everybody. Okay, praise the Lord. Okay. All right, survive that. I was worried about that. <laughs> okay, I, wanna, I want you to turn, if you will, to Malachi chapter 4. I want to read uh, the last, or verse 5 and 6 from Malachi chapter 4. I want to talk to you about, um, you know, we, we want to see a reconciliation of generations. Our, our culture suffers when we divide ourselves among generational lines. And uh, one place where this should not be happening is in the church. The church needs to be leading in honoring fathers, honoring children, honoring mothers, honoring family, honoring generations that have gone before us that were righteous. You know what? Sometimes you do need to make a change because uh, you need to make a change to go on with God. Maybe your family's not always living for God. I recognize that. But uh, what we're going to do today as we look at the Scripture, we look at the ideals that God places in the Word, and we seek to, to learn what He has for us through those ideals, recognizing that a lot of times life doesn't reflect that ideal. But no condemnation in that. Let's just look at what God wants to, wants to minister to us, and let's seek to incorporate those into our lives. Let's seek to allow the Holy Spirit to work those out in our lives, even though we come to Him sometimes in an imperfect position. Does that make sense? So he says in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, now Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament, and it happens to be the last book in, the, in, the, um, in our Old Testament. And um, he's prophesying the coming of Jesus, and he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I think in the King James it says, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. (laughs) Curse, that's a heavy language, utter destruction. And see, there was evidently a disconnect in Malachi's time. And, and, And this was not... This was a problem in God's mind because one of the key functions of this prophet that would come before Jesus was to restore the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. He wanted there to be this connection of generations in order to keep the land preserved. Otherwise, the land would enter into a cursed position. And and this is not what God wanted for Israel. You know, God sought... um, he, he wanted this kind of stability, the hearts of the children to the fathers, the hearts of the fathers to the children, so that he could preserve the land and preserve a witness for him throughout the cultures. Isn't that why he chose Abraham? Look at, look at Genesis chapter 18 with me. I've got a lot of scriptures today. Just write them down um, if you'd like to study this out later. But Genesis chapter 18, starting at verse 17, we read about God calling Abraham. And uh, he says, 
shall, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. See, I chose Abraham, why? That he may command his children and his household after him. God wanted a witness for himself in the earth through Abraham's descendants forever. And the only way that would happen is if Abraham had something to pass on to his children to command them to walk in the way of the Lord and that each generation would continue to walk in the way of the Lord. But can you see how God works on the earth through families? And evidently, this wasn't happening in Malachi's time. Evidently, there was somehow a disconnect between the hearts of the fathers to the hearts of their children. See, leading your family in the way of the Lord, it does bring stability to a nation, to a culture, to a people. And also, it says there in, in Genesis, it says, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had promised him that the Lord may bring to Abraham. See, when we do this, when we can pass on godly ideas, godly values, godliness, the knowledge of God to our children, God can bring to our nation the things that he's promised us. It's sometimes it's not that God's not willing or that God doesn't want to, it's that we're not walking in step with what he's wanting to do. Because there is an enemy who's seeking to divide us, divide the generations, divide the genders, divide the, the, the cultures, divide the races. There's one division that Jesus came to bring and is dividing those who are serving God with those who are not. And everything else, we're supposed to be, we're, we'll, we'll have unity in Christ, amen? So he's wanting to bring things to Abraham, but he says, I need Abraham to be able to command his children after him to walk in the ways and to do something, to do righteousness and to do justice. He's making a demand on how they live, is he not? I want my kids to do the right things. I want them to live the right way. I don't want them just to, to hang on to my faith as something that they believe as they live their own lives or live the life of a world. I want my kids to actually do better than me. I want them to walk closer to God than I am. Amen? And my prayer is that I can pass that on to my kids. Not just where I'm at now, but start here. Don't go out and have to reinvent everything. Start here and grow in God. Don't go out and, and, and throw everything away and then try to have to use your rational mind to prove everything to yourself again. Walk in this now as you're growing up and go farther than me, amen? I think that's why we're seeing so much instability in our nation today. We have a lot of, uh, a lot of division. You know, 100 years ago, we had the Pentecostal movement, a revival. It was awesome reading the, reading the things about it. After that, we had, you know, a healing renewal. People are getting healed left and right with these big evangelists going across the land with their tents, and people are going up and getting healed. We had the charismatic renewal. We had a teaching movement after that. I mean, they used to pack out, the, in the early days of the, the Word of Faith teaching, they'd pack out auditoriums, people just hungry to come and hear about God. They would. 
But, you know, we've had a few outpourings after that. But I'm not seeing anything going on right now that's just so captured the imagination of this nation. But we need to. But I'm telling you what, I'm determined to be revival. Are you? Let's be revival. Come on, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Why don't we be revival right now? Not trying to always get God to do something, do something. Let's, let's be that person walking in step with what he's already demonstrated in his word and through history that he wants to do. Let's step into that and allow him to use us. Amen. You know, maybe, maybe it won't be a national movement, but maybe I can be revival to somebody I know. Maybe I can be revival to this church. Maybe I can be revival to this town. And who knows? Who knows what'll happen after that, right? Amen. So let's do it. So there's these things happening in Malachi's day. There's evidently this breakdown of generations. Now, I find it really interesting when you study the Old Testament and you go to Deuteronomy uh, when, when God's about ready to lead the people of Israel into the land. He sets before them blessings and curses. And then he tells them, choose the blessings so that you guys can live, right? I'm gonna set before you blessing and curses, life and death. He says, choose life. He gives the choice to them. It's up to them whether they're going to walk in life or not. But I think it's really interesting when you read through those passages and you see what God calls a curse. In other words, this is not what he wanted for Israel. It's a curse. And uh, I, I don't want to, I want to be careful as I, I begin to share this, because if you're in Jesus, you are not under a curse. <laughs> I heard some preaching one time, and it was it was preaching along uh, some lines of some things where I, I came back, I listened to it and I really respected this man. And I thought after he was done, I thought I might be under a curse. I did. I was like, am I cursed? Why? Because, I mean, every symptom he gave me, like, matched my life. And I'm like, am I under a curse? Well, no, if, there's no curse. When you're in Jesus, you're redeemed from the curse of the law. This passage is not being written to you, okay? We're redeemed from this curse. You're not under a curse, Okay, but, but when, when he was describing to Israel what bad things that would happen if you didn't continue to walk in my way, one of the things he said in Deuteronomy 28, 32, he says, your sons and daughters will be given to another people. Well, your eyes will look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you'll be helpless. And in verse 41, it says, your, you shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours. They shall go into captivity. And I'm thinking, you know, isn't that the number one fear of the church today, that we'll, we will lose our kids to the world? That uh, as we raise them up, somebody else will capture their imagination and they'll, they'll give them their values and their culture and their influence and they'll bring them astray from, from what we want to teach them? See, God's not okay with that. God wants us to be able to walk in such a way with him that we have something to pass on to our children and then instill that in them. We don't want the world to take them and raise them and influence them and give them their values. This is one of the number one fears of the church. And you know, the church's um, 
the church's solution to this oftentimes is, I mean, some big youth ministries and sensational youth programs and things like that. And there's nothing wrong. Tara's doing an excellent job with the youth. We had um, Bryson share last Wednesday, man, because he was so, I don't even know if she knows because she was gone. But she, we had, uh, 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 he was so stirred up by what God was doing in his life and what he learned and what he heard at youth camp. Man, he, he stood here and shared it on Wednesday night to all of us. And it was, it was awesome. I mean, it was just awesome seeing his heart and what God's doing in his life. So, I mean, God's doing things with our youth. But, you know, sometimes we, we want to overact. We need more entertainment and opportunities and big, big programs. But what does God say that the key to, keep, to retaining the generations and keeping the youth are? It's the father's. I'm just telling you, God sees you. You are ultimately the key to what God is doing to preserve the youth in a culture. It's the fathers. Don't pass off that responsibility. Fathers, you are God's solution to this problem. You are the key to the whole thing. You're the key to the youth not falling away. I want to tell you about this man named Daniel in the Bible. It really illustrates some of these things I'm speaking of. Daniel grew up in Israel, but when he was in his teen years, he was taken captive. Why was he taken captive? Because his parents' generation and their fathers before them did not keep the covenant of God. And what did God say that would happen in Deuteronomy 28? Your children will be taken captive. And here's Daniel, a teenager, taken captive now to a foreign country, to Babylon, where he was going to serve a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. We can read about it in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. He says, the king commanded, oh man, these big words, I should have skipped them. Y'all help me. Asphanaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people to Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Okay, listen, these people, these captives that were taken over, they were royalty. They were of the royal family. They were of the nobility. Okay, Daniel had a hope and a future in Israel. He was royalty. He had something to do, and all of a sudden, it's gone. He finds himself in a pagan land, and he looks around, and he's like, I'm alone here. Verse, verse four, it goes on, uh, I got ahead of myself there. He says, youths without blemish. So this is describing Daniel, okay, without blemish. Have you ever seen a teenager without blemish? <laughs> of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. These are some sharp individuals, some sharp young people who've been hauled off to this pagan nation to serve this pagan king. And then it says, what are they going to do to them? They're going to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Verse 5, then the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, they're eating the king's food. He's treating them like royalty. And then it says they were to be educated for three years. What are they doing? They're going off to college for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. And you probably know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But see, they're going, they're going off to be educated, to be indoctrinated for three years. That's what, Deb, that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. When he invaded a country, he would bring in, import the youths from that country, and he'd run them through his indoctrination program, and then he, they'd use him, he'd use them to govern his empire. 
He looked for the sharpest and the best from each culture that he, he would invade and take over. And then he would bring them in there. He'd teach them their language. He'd teach them their culture. He'd teach them their values. And when, they were, when he was all done with them, they were good citizens of the state. They were good citizens of Babylon. What does Bible call Babylon? <laughs> Mother of our har- harlots and all abominations of the earth. Bible doesn't have anything good to say about Babylon. And that's, that's this man's intention, to take these youth, reprogram them, and let them serve in his empire and his kingdom. I'll tell you what, you need to be careful. I know, you know, people are, people, I, I, I can speak for myself. I, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to God. I'm praying for my kids. Because, um, you know, if you're going to send them to Babylon to get educated, don't be surprised if they come back Babylonians. You know what I'm saying? I know that there may be a calling in their lives where they need a college degree or different things, but there are more than one ways to get it. You don't have to go experience college life to get a college degree. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Nobody asked me if I lived on campus or not when they asked for my degree or my transcripts. (laughs) They just don't care. And uh, there's ways to do it, but I don't want them to go the way of the world. I don't want them to go into the, the pagan indoctrination and learn the things of the world. Because the, I'm telling you, there's, there's an opportunity for them to have somebody drive a wedge between what we're teaching them at home and what they're doing out there in the world. Yeah. And they need to be ready for it. So they're teaching them the culture and the values of Babylon. And you know, here's the thing. If you want to re- radically reprogram a culture, what do you do? You cut off the young people from their parents' generation. It's just what you do. Then you can indoctrinate. You can introduce any kind of radical new ideas that you want. And this is not a conspiracy theory. This is not me just... This is how it works. This is proven throughout history. I think one time I was sharing this, and and, uh, Tito told me, that's what they did in Cuba. (laughs) He he knows. Uh, Right before I met Rin Kim, so it's been about 10 years ago... uh, um, or actually right when I met Rin Kim, I spent the whole summer just reading books of uh, autobiographies of uh, people who, who went through World War II and people who worked behind the Iron Curtain smuggling Bibles and different things into, into uh, Eastern Europe after that. And just, that's what they do. They would tell the, tell the kids, don't worship your parents' gods. Why? Because science has proven there is no God. And so what did they teach him? They taught them atheism, Darwinism, Science. Come on, does that sound like anything going on today? Come on, this is, it's not a conspiracy theory. I'm not, I'm not a, 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 a fringe, you know, crazy person for saying this. It's, it's, it's well documented throughout history. Don't worship the God your parents do. Science has proven there is no God. You know, um, I remember when I was in third grade, which is a long time ago now, I remember one of our reading uh, 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 stories in our reading class was a story about how acid rain Acid rain, that was the thing that year. Acid rain was going to just destroy the planet. Acid rain. Then in fourth grade, I remember reading a book that said, by the year 2025, we would all be living in a biosphere because the pollution would be so bad. And if we ever left the biosphere, we'd have to wear a gas mask just to go outside. Well, I'm in fourth grade, right? I mean, just 15 years ago, it was like ABC News and Al Gore and others, they were saying that by, uh, you know, within five or so years, New York would be underwater because the ice caps were all going to melt. I haven't been to New York for a while. Anybody been up there? Anybody know this? Is, is it still stand? Is it underwater? Uh, I, I'm just saying everything's a scare tactic, is it not? Everything's just an emergency. And if you're a young person, you know, young people are often idealists. 
And, you know, they, they may really care about some of these things. They care about the environment and economic equality and social justice and all these things. But for those of us who've been around a few decades, we've seen some of these things come and go and come back around and go. It gives you some stability in your life when you don't have to react to every emergency that pops up. Do you get what I'm trying to say? But here's the thing. The young person doesn't always have that perspective. So they're zealous. Zeal without knowledge, right? But we need that kind of zeal because I'm telling you what, some of us have become complacent. <laughs> Just easing on with the status quo. We've lost that urgency that the young people have and we need it back. I mean, when the Pentecostal movement hit 100 years ago, people were going all over the world. It evangelized the world from that movement. And they went before they were even ready. They went on faith. They thought Jesus was coming back so quickly. I don't have time to go to three years of school. I've got to get to the field now. We've lost some of that urgency. We need a little bit of that back in our life. We need a fire under us. Amen? See, we, you see, we need the zeal of the youth and we need the wisdom of people who can see long-term. We need both. Don't let the world divide us. We need the wisdom of the older people. You know, that zeal needs to be directed. That zeal needs to be focused in the right direction. That's, all, that's what it needs. We don't want to lose the zeal. We don't want to kind of come against the zeal. We need to focus it and let it work for what God wants to do. That's why the hearts of the fathers need to be turned toward their children and the hearts of the children need to be turned toward their fathers. The younger generation needs to ask the older generation, why are you doing this? And we need to let them ask the questions. Right. You know, I've been, since I transitioned out of the cabinet shop, I've been able to spend a lot more time with my kids, which has been great. I feel like uh, we were so busy. Benjamin's four now. And that first year that he was born, man, I was so busy. I, I'm, I miss, I mean, every night when Abigail was little that first year, I was on the, my knees every night crawling around the floor with her, helping her with her first steps. I don't even remember it with Benjamin. I was so busy. I feel so bad because those, those moments are like that long and then they're over. I was so busy, but uh, I'm getting to spend some time with them now. But I was under the false impression that uh, as I'd spend more time with my kids, I could have them with me and I could read the word and pray and study and do things with my kids, let them see me doing it. But Abigail is just constant. Why, Dad? Why, Dad? Do you remember this? Dad, da, da, da. She just never stops. It's constant. I mean, I love it. It's great. But man, it's like, then you finally get to the point where you're like, okay, no talking. And it's like, that's, that's, that's not what I want to be to her. I don't want to be out. Stop. I'm trying to, can't you see? I'm trying to pray. <laughs> I'm trying to read my Bible. That's not, a, that, I don't, I don't want to create that. But sometimes I do. I mean, I, I come here to the church to, 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 to study or something or prep for Sunday. That's because I need to get, you know, I need to be able to suspend a thought in my head for more than like five seconds, you know, <laughs> and work it out. But, but, uh, but, you know, we need the young people in our lives, the younger generation to ask us why. What are you doing that for? Is, are you, is it producing fruit or is it just something that you've received as a tradition and you need to change it? We need to let them challenge us. We do, but we also need the younger people to be ready to, to uh, receive an answer like, well, actually, there's a reason we do this, you know? <laughs> there might be a reason we do this. Maybe what your idea, what you're thinking about has been tried and it actually doesn't work, right? But let's not just dismiss a generation that's challenged us. Let's look at the problem with fresh eyes and step forward into where God wants to take us as a church, amen?
So imagine you're Daniel. You know, every generation blames the generation before it for all the evils in the world. That's just the way it works, right? And this generation, no different. You know, I don't see it so much because, uh, thank God, I've just really take, stepped way back from reading news and, and listening to, to radio constantly. But you go out there and you look in the world, man, uh, the, this, the younger generation, they're blaming the, you know, like the boomer generation, my parents' generation, for all the bad stuff that's going on in the world. Hmm? It's Trump. Oh, yeah, that and Trump. Yeah, but they, but they are. But I mean, here's the thing. Imagine you're Daniel, okay? Daniel had a right to be offended. He had a right to be upset. I mean, he's a teenager. He's in a pagan land because his parents' generation did not keep the, the law. Of the, it wasn't his fault. He had every right to be angry and confused and bitter, mad at God and mad at the world and mad at his family. He's captured, he's in a foreign land, and all at once his nation is gone. His dream, gone. His hope, gone. His future is gone. He could have said, why bother? Who's going to care? But what did Daniel do instead? Look at Daniel, same, same chapter, chapter 1, verse 8. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not to defile himself. Daniel resolved. See, we need to have inside of us that kind of resolve. You need to instill that in your kids, that kind of resolve. Because if they find themselves over there in, in Nebuchadnezzar's court, man, and with that pressure to cave and give in, and all their hopes at once taken out away from them, what's going to keep them standing? What's going to keep them strong? Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. He would not dishonor his father's God. Though he had every reason to give in. You know, I don't think there's anybody who's been dealt a hand quite as hard as Daniel today. In America especially. And it says in verse 9 that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. Having that kind of resolve, man, is a channel. It's a, it opens a door for God to give you favor. You know, I envision a church where all the generations actually worship together like we do today, Sunday morning, pray together, experience God together. I think that's important that we experience God together. Study the word and face the tough questions together. We need to, together. Because like with Daniel, we're being divided along generational lines on purpose. It's not an accident. It's on purpose. I mean, there's always the natural thing of a teenager coming to his ears and pushing boundaries and limits. That's natural. That's not a bad thing. But there are, there are people who are not teenagers who are telling our young people, <laughs> don't listen to your father's and your mother's old way of life. And it's intentional out there. And we need to fight in the kingdom of God and in our church, we need to fight for that kind of generational unity. We need to be intentional about it. I want to take you. Um, I want to take you to a, a time when uh, this is about. Seven, so Daniel is exiled. Let me let me just give you some background. Daniel is exiled into Babylon, and they prophesied that it'd be uh, seventy years of exile. Right, seventy years, eighty, seventy. Thank you, thank you. I don't know why it slipped my mind. Um, especially because I have 70 written in front of me. 
But I saw 70, and all of a sudden it didn't look right. I was like, it was 80, wasn't it? No, it was 70. It, 70 years. So after 70 years, the exiles start returning to Jerusalem, and they start building the temple. Okay, so I want to take you to that that story here. This is 70 years after Daniel, and it's about 100 years before where we were reading when I opened up in Malachi, where the prophet Malachi uh, said, I'll turn the hearts of the children to the father. So this is historically, this is in between these two. That, okay, I started here. We went back to Daniel. We're coming up 70 years, and right now we're, we're building the temple back in Jerusalem. It had been destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar came and Babylonians came. They wiped it. They destroyed everything, hauled everybody to Babylon, and... Um, and uh, here we are 70 years later. The exiles from Babylon, they begin returning to Israel. They maintain their cultural identity as they were captive in, in um, somewhat they did, in Babylon. They come back, and uh, in Ezra chapter 3, verse 10, we can read about it. It says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with the trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord. Listen, according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. What they did was they found that the directions that David, the king of Israel, who built, whose son built the first temple, he gave these instructions to Solomon to build the temple. They found those instructions, and here they are now. The temple's destroyed. They're rebuilding it, and they're doing their best to reenact the whole thing. They've got the, the original instructions from King David, and they're laying the temple stones, and they're doing all this. And it says, as they were working, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And they were singing, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's houses Old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. And though many shouted for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard from far away. Can you see here the emotional response, the difference? The temple is being built, the foundations are laid, and the young people are just, all this zeal, we're doing something for the Lord, and they're singing, and they're doing all this. But the older ones who were alive when Israel was taken captive, they remembered the glory of the former house, and they cried. Because it wasn't like what, what they had before. And they knew it. You know, if you're younger here, you've never known the golden age of the 1950s in America, man, the personal freedom that 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 you know they had, it was a they they call it the golden years in many ways, right? You've never known the turbulent times of the 1960s. You know, I've heard that some of the protests that we've had here recently in recent years are they don't even compare to what was going on in the United States in the 1960s. I don't know, I wasn't alive, but you know, some of you were, and many of you weren't. You know, what would you know about living under a Jimmy Carter presidency if you weren't there, right? You just know what you've been told, right? Or Ronald Reagan or, or uh, Bill Clinton, you know, this is kind of come up into my era, Bill Clinton and uh, Ronald Reagan. But and some of you guys never actually had to wear bell bottoms. <laughs> some of you guys never lived at a time where you could go to a store and buy them. You have to go to a secondhand store now to even find them, but, but that's all right. But, you know, what, I'm just saying, you know, I, I, I got to watch um, uh, when 9-11 when, uh, happened, man. I, I, I was glued to the TV. I was working at a church. I was glued to the TV. I saw that second airplane hit that tower live. 
My friends are up in, in, in New York across the river from Manhattan in Brooklyn watching it happen from the top of their building. I mean, we lived through that. But there are people here who've only learned about it in school. It's just what you've been told, right? You see how perspective, it, it changes things. Many of you guys don't remember a time before microwave ovens or cell phones or social media. Right? Think about that. Can you imagine, you know, those born into captivity who came back and they're building a temple and they're rejoicing. They never knew a time when Israel was free. They were born in captivity. You know, could you imagine being born? Okay, I met Marin Kim on Facebook. You guys know that. So I did do social media at least at one time in my life. And uh, I met her on Facebook. And, and I was good at it. Because, I mean, I, I, not only did I just meet people, I got married <laughs> through Facebook. Come on. I mean, that, that deserves some recognition. But, you know, for me, my, 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 my social media has always been just an extension of me. It's never, I've never found my identity in it. It's been a tool. It's been an extension. But what if you were born and before you, were, you know, before you even become a teenager, your parents have already plastered you all over social media and everything you've ever done is documented for the world. How do you think differently than somebody who's just kind of added it into their life. If you grew up into that, man, that is your social expression. That is your identity. You don't think the same way that I think. Who remembers the glory days? <laughs> just, just kidding. But the time, a, a time before, right? And I'm not saying that it's right or even okay. I'm just saying we need to seek to understand that because they don't think the way the older people think. We have different ways of thoughts. And if we will use that on purpose, it'll help us. It'll eliminate blind spots and weaknesses, but the goal is to come together and understand one another, right? And appreciate the zeal and appreciate the energy, appreciate the wisdom, and let's go on with God, right? But, uh, you know, I remember a time before cell phones. You'd go for a drive or something and somebody would go leave. You didn't know where they were and you didn't worry about it either. And that was really nice, to be honest with you, because now if you call somebody and they don't answer like right now, What's wrong? Call them again. 47 missed calls when I get back to the car. I'm not talking about anybody specific. <laughs> not really. She's not that bad. I remember one time she was in India and I did that to her though. She, she had like 40 missed calls <laughs> when she finally got up, got up to the room and found her phone. But you know, if you, if you've, you, if you've always lived with that, you think about things differently. That's all I'm trying to say. It's just a different mindset. It doesn't mean people are, I mean, I, just because I don't like how you're doing something doesn't mean that you can't be used of God, yes. right? We cannot disqualify the younger generation coming up and say, you can't be used of God because you don't do blah, 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 right? No, God will use them just to spite us. <laughs> so we don't want to do this. See, God wanted the temple work to continue. The old people are crying because they didn't, they, they, they didn't, it wasn't like what it was. The young people are, 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 you know, zealous, but the old people, they're upset. So what does he do? He sends encouragement through the prophets. He sends encouragement through Haggai, okay? Haggai uh, chapter two and verse two, listen to what he says. Speak now to Zerubbabel. Now Zerubbabel, just so you know, he's like the foreman. He's the man who's overseeing the work of the temple here. He says, speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, this is the remnant of the people working on the temple. He says, who was left among you who saw this house in its former glory? I mean, God is addressing this head on. How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? 
Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. He's telling these people, keep the work going. I am involved in this. I want this temple built. Zechariah said something similar. He addresses it as well. Zechariah chapter four, verse eight, he says, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the days of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. You know, maybe it wasn't like it was in the eyes of the older generation, but it was God ordained, was it not? God was in it. God was doing something here. Amen? So now let me take you back to Malachi. This is 100 years after this time. The temple was built. They finished it. Okay? 100 years later, the temple is built. The priests are there ministering. They're doing their priestly thing at the temple. But what happens is this. They're getting disheartened. Honestly, they're bored. They're going through the motions. But the glory of God still never returned to the temple. And they're getting sloppy. They're bored. They're, bringing, they're not bringing the offerings and the tithes to the storehouse like they were told. They're not keeping their vows to the Lord. They're offering blemished offerings, blemished sacrifices. They're bringing the, they're bringing the goats with the hormone problems <laughs> to the temple and, the, and blind animals. And, the, and, 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 and the priests are receiving it. And offering these as a sacrifice. That's not how you're supposed to offer a sacrifice. You're supposed to bring an unblemished sacrifice. And they're getting sloppy. They're getting careless because they're thinking they're not like Daniel. They're thinking, why bother? We're just going through the motions here. The glory of God is not in this house. And they knew it. They weren't being faithful to their wives. The book of Malachi brought them correction on all these things. See, they, they're saying, why bother? But the Malachi comes and he corrects them. And what does he say? He says, hold on. Malachi chapter 3, 1. Behold, I'll send my messenger. He'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Hang on, I'm still in this. The Lord is coming. The glory is coming to his temple. You've not seen it yet, but keep doing the right thing. And this would be the temple about 400 years after this, 400 years later, that a young Jewish woman and her husband would bring their little child to dedicate him to the Lord. And you can read that story in Luke. Luke chapter two, I'm gonna read it to you. Chapter two, I'm gonna start with verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, and he's waiting 400 years later, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now are you letting, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory to your people Israel. And here it is all of a sudden, all at once, the glory of God entered the temple. 
See, this temple had to be built. It was all part of God's plan. He needed this temple to be standing so Jesus could come there and be dedicated. And Jesus comes, the glory of God returns to the temple. And Jesus' ministry was greater than any Levite, any priest, or any king who served in Jerusalem or at the temple. Surpassed the first glory. It was an integral part of God's plan. As they were laying those foundations and filling all those emotions, God was looking, what, 500 years into the future, saying, build it. I need it built. I've got a plan. What we want to do is we want to come together and we want to build for the kingdom of God because God is doing something. He's building us together as a temple of living stones fitted together. He's building us together as a body of Christ joined by that which each joint supplies. That means each joint is important. I want to talk to the fathers just for a minute. Um, this is Ephesians chapter 6. I want to read chapter starting with verse 1. It says, children, obey your parents. You know that passage. Somebody go get my kids and bring them in the room. <laughs> I want to preach at them. Now, Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, that it may well go with, go, well go with you. <laughs> Sounds like Master Yoda. That it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So obviously there's a command here for children to honor their parents. But what I find so interesting about this passage is this. In, in Ephesians, Paul is speaking this. But if you go back and look in Deuteronomy, what he's quoting is actually a very Israel-specific promise. I want to read it to you from Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. He says, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Isn't it interesting that you may live long in the land? Is this not, would you agree that this is a very Israel-specific promise because he's taking them into the land and he's saying, when you go into the land, honor your parents that it may go well with you in the land, right? But Paul's taking that passage from, from the Jews and he's applying it to the church and he tw- changes it just a little bit, but Why? Why? Because God's claim on Israel as their God and, and their, his people has just been, an, an, all it is, it was an advance indication, an advance signal of God's claim on the whole earth. For all the earth is mine. For the, for the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. God working in Israel was just an advance signal of what he's going to do for the whole earth. And so he says to us, honor your parents Let these generations be connected. Why? That it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. When the hearts of the fathers are turned toward their children and the hearts of the children are turned toward the fathers, there's healing in the land. There's stability in the land. And in order to do what God wants to accomplish on the earth today, we need the generations to be all working together, all pull in the same direction, right? Don't let the world divide us. Don't let the current culture divide us. And I'm going to speak to fathers for a minute. It says in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The best thing we can do for our children is actually have something to give them. Instruction, discipline, let them know the way of the Lord. The best thing we can do is to live out a a life that's worth imitating in front of them. 
to be godly fathers, to be godly men, to live a life of prayer, a life of generous giving, of caring for the lost and caring for, pe- caring for your own, caring for your family and also caring for others and live that out in front of them and let them see that. And I, I wanna say this, I know when I recognize the fact that there are some here today who aren't fathers. <laughs> More than half of us are not fathers, but everybody has a father. And there's some here who are estranged from their fathers. There's some here whose fathers have passed. You know, we're, we're in all different situations here, right? Maybe there are fathers who are no longer close to their children. But we look in the Bible, like I said, and we look at these ideals that it presents. And, and, and uh, we want to understand them. And we want to, you know, work them into our lives and strive to do them. Because, see, when we understand what God's saying, we're, 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 we're looking at what God is doing. These are the things that he's doing. When he heals your heart and he restores your relationships, this is the work of God. So we don't want to just dismiss it and throw it all away. When I did my internship in New York to do inner city ministry, they told me flat out, they said, do not go out there and teach a good father. Don't teach Father God, loving Father God. They said, teach Jesus the good shepherd because these kids here don't understand father because they don't have fathers. And there's some truth to that in the sense that when we communicate we, you know, I have a minute to grab your attention and impart an idea. And so I don't want to say something like, oh, God wants to be your loving father and maybe your father has beat you all your life. I don't want to bring up those, you know, so, so that made sense. But at the same time, for those of us who get to spend time together and look into the word, let's not throw away what the Bible reveals about God wanting to be our loving father. Let's not throw it away. Just because maybe your father didn't live up to those expectations, let's not throw away the, what Jesus wants to show us, what God wants to show us about his heart of a father toward a kid, because he's a perfect father. So let's not throw away what the Bible teaches just because we've not experienced it, amen? So we, we can work through these things together. So not everybody you know, has come from a home maybe where, where a father was involved. But at the same time, there is a message in here for all of us. So if you're a person, you know, you, you have a father looking out for you. I mean, just recognize God placed them in your life. Honor them. They're there to help you, to teach you, to discipline you, to help you build that resolve in your life. So that when you find yourself in Nebuchadnezzar's court, you won't bow down to the culture. You'll stand for God. That's why God gave you that father. But if you're a father and your children are all grown up, or you know, maybe even you're, you, you're not close to your children anymore, there's always things you can do. First thing is pray for them, because prayer makes a big difference. Prayer, I mean, you hear miracles all the time of, of, uh, of people you know, getting saved or whatever, and I attribute it to my praying grandma. <laughs> God heard my grandma's prayers, and the God wouldn't let me go. <laughs> Come on, it makes a difference. That's one. And the second thing I just want to encourage you to do, and I see it happening here, and I love it. Father those around you. Be that coach, that mentor, that encouragement. Because we need it. We need it. And for those who don't have a father in your life at this point, I'm going to go ahead and get the band to come up. For those who maybe don't have a father in their lives, I want to read Psalm 68, verse 5 and 6. I want you to see God's heart in this thing. Psalm 68, chapter 5. It says, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solidarity... 
God settles the solitary in a home and he leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Listen, God settles the solitary in a home. God himself is the father of the fatherless. This is God. He's revealing his character and his nature through this psalm. He can say anything he wants. And what does he say? He says, I am a father to the fatherless. God wants to father you. And I'm telling you what, we don't quit needing fathers just because we become adults either. Look for people to encourage in your life. Come on, some of us adults, and and if you're an older person, we need your encouragement. (laughs) I know that's how I'm putting myself with the younger group. (laughs) But, But we do. We need your encouragement, and it means a lot. I mean, so many of you encourage me, and it means the world. You have no idea. But here's God saying, I could, he could say anything he wants. He says, I want you to know me as a father to the fatherless. And so I just want to encourage you on this Father's Day. Because maybe you've not found that, you know, in an earthly relationship, but it's here for you in a spiritual relationship with God. And also, it says he puts the solitary in homes, you know. Let this body here be a home to you. That's what we're here for. We're here for one another. Because this is showing the heart of God. And so if we give God full expression in this church, this is what we'll see. We'll see this peace and these, these relationships. And, you know... Like I said, it, it could happen. God, God's ideal would be for every family to know him and be perfect and pass this on. But that's not the reality that we see. But if we will lend ourselves to have, let God have expression in our church and in our group, we will see this church be a home for the fatherless. Amen.